seated. I invite you to join me now in taking your copy of God's Word or Pew Bible and turning with me to our passage for this morning. We turn back to the book of Proverbs, and we are in chapter 3, verses 9 through 12. So if you will find Proverbs 3, verses 9 through 12. Of course, I look around this morning, I believe all of you have been with us at some point during the summer, so you know that we are in the middle of our summer series on the book of Proverbs, which is uh, this book of God's wisdom. And if we, as we have seen, this isn't just a book about practical wisdom, it's a wisdom that first points us to Jesus Christ, because he is wisdom incarnate, and it's the wisdom of placing our faith in him, resting, receiving, resting him alone for salvation as he's offered in the gospel. That's the highest form of wisdom, isn't it? The trust in who Jesus is and what he has done for our salvation. So the book of Proverbs points us to Jesus Christ. But also in that, when we have faith in Jesus, it continues to point to Christ and how we now live for him. What does the wise Christian life look like? And that's what the book of Proverbs answers. And what it does, we'll see some this morning, we have been seeing, is not only does it say, this is what you do, but it also says, here's the blessings that come from it. It says, if you, if you confess that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, then you will live for him. And when you live for him, here are the blessings that come from it. Now, of course, there's another side of the coin to that, right? That if we profess Jesus Christ, and we hear his wisdom, but we don't listen to it, we don't abide to it, then there are curses that come from it. And I think on the surface we go, well, I would rather have blessings than curses. The blessings don't come from osmosis. The blessings don't just come out of the the ether. The blessings come when we listen to God and his word and we say, you are wise. And this is the wisdom you've given to me. I will live by it. And that's where the blessings come from. It comes in the mundane, normal, ordinary parts of life. It comes in the extraordinary parts of life, which we'll look at some this morning. And so with that being said, let me pray for us and let's come together uh, before God's word. So join me now as we pray. Uh, Lord, we thank you for your wisdom because um, I do not say this, pray this in any false humility. I'm not very wise. And so if this was just me up here preaching about wisdom, it would be a very short sermon and wouldn't be very helpful. But thankfully, this isn't about the preacher. This is about you. This is about your word, your wisdom. And so, Lord, speak your wisdom through me this morning. May I just be the messenger. This isn't about James McManus. This is about Jesus Christ, wisdom incarnate. So, Lord, use me as your messenger so your people will only hear your wisdom this morning and will benefit from not only hearing it, but living by it. Guide us in this direction, we pray this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So Proverbs chapter 3, verses 9 through 12. We will stand together now for the reading of God's word. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. My son, Do not despise the Lord's discipline, or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves, 
as a father and a son in whom he delights. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. You may be seated. I believe for many of us, when we were growing up and going to school, and we got to high school, and we got to our English classes, we were made to read the classics. So I want to read this line for you this morning, and I want to see if you, A, remember this line, B, remember the author, C, remember the book, and D, be honest if you actually read all the book past the opening line. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times, it was the age of wisdom, it was the age of foolishness, it was the epoch of belief, it was the epoch of incredulity. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. Y'all remember that line? Yeah. Who wrote it? Dickens. Dickens. What book? Tell of Two Cities. How can't answer the next question? How many of you actually read it when you're, when you when it was assigned to you? A few of you. And the rest of us just got the cliff notes, right? And just <laughs> had someone else do it for us, right? Right, that's the opening line. That's a famous opening line to Dickens' book, A Tale of Two Cities, which is one of the best-selling novels of all time. Now, why, why does this line resonate? Why can we remember? Even if we didn't read all the book, why don't we remember it? Well, we remember it because it's well-written. But it also memorably, memorably describes kind of the, the plot of the book, the extremes of the lives and times of the characters in this book, of, uh, of people, some who are in prison, uh, some who aren't, they're out free and working. Also describes the kind of daytime and culture it was set in, 19th or 18th century London and Paris and the extremities of life and culture in the cities in that time. I think it's also memorable because it can help describe our lives. Maybe we haven't ever said it out loud, but in some sense or another, we have probably said that this was the best of times, this was the worst of times. There's a sense where Charles Dickens really kind of Nailed the human experience. It's been the best of times. It's been the worst of times. And sometimes we find those, those seem to be happening simultaneously. So this line isn't just for, for fictional characters. It's not for other people. We find it's truth for us. That we've had those days and times in our lives where everything is going great. And then we had those days and times where it seems like nothing can go right. You can remember the best of times. And you can recall the worst of times. It's a true statement. It's even true for the Christian life. We've talked about before, the Christian life can be a hard life. One of the biggest lies that came out of 20th century uh, Christianity, we'll put quotation marks, 20th century Christianity is that when you become a Christian, everything just becomes easy and happy and go lucky, right? Place your faith in Jesus Christ, and everything is great after that. And we wonder why people stop coming to the church. Because life is hard. Even the Christian life. That's a testimony of Scripture. Think about the lives of Joseph, Moses, Abraham, Noah, David. They had the best of times. And they had the worst of times. We think of Paul and, and, and Peter, Thomas, James, and John, the other disciples. What do we find? They had the best of times. But they also had the worst of times. We've seen it in lives of, of Christians who have come before us. We've seen it in our own lives. 
the best of times, it's the worst of times. The question is, what do we do as Christians to wisely handle these extremes of life? What's God's wisdom for us when things are going well? What's God's wisdom for us when things are going horribly? What do we do? And that's the wisdom of this passage. passage. It's godly wisdom for the best of times. It's godly wisdom for the worst of times. And this is still set in the context that we've been talking about, uh, the context of of an intimate conversation between a father and a son, Solomon and his son. As we said, it it kind of reads like they're, they're out fishing. They're having this intimate conversation as they're waiting for the fish to bite. Maybe some catfish to catch to fry for July 4th, if Israelites, whatever the equivalent of July 4th is for Israelites. Um, but they're having this intimate conversation. And Solomon is talking to his son, and he's sharing wisdom with him about how to live life well. All of us as parents, grandparents, all of us as, who, who have loved ones in our lives, we want that for our loved ones. This isn't unusual. We want to see our children, our grandchildren, our loved ones to live life well. So we find what helps is, is sharing this wisdom with them. That's what Solomon's doing here, saying, my son, if you listen to me, I'm, I'm your father. If you follow this wisdom, and here are blessings that will come from a life well lived. And again, I think that's something that resonates with many, of us, with, with many of us. If we were given a choice to live a good life or a bad life, we would choose a good life, right? We want to live the good life. Uh, we, we want our children, our families, we want all our loved ones to live a good life. And, and when we get to the end of our life, and, there's, and your funeral is being held here at Bethel, and whoever the preacher is at that time sends this pulpit, you want that preacher to be able to say, they lived a life well. They lived a good life, and especially they lived a good life according to God and to his wisdom. And so what we learn in Proverbs is when we follow the wisdom of God, when that wisdom God's wisdom, not our wisdom, not the wisdom of the world, but God's wisdom is our compass in life. That's what leads us to living a good life. A life that overflows with the blessings of God. So a good life is a life that's lived by his wisdom of God. That's Solomon's perspective. That's, That's the thesis of what Solomon is sharing with his son. Solomon knows, at this, at this time, he knows what life is like as a follower of God. He's had the good times. He's enjoyed the good times. But he's also had the bad times. He knows the joys of life. He knows the struggles of life. He knows the happiness of life. He knows the sorrow of life. He knows those bright, sunny days when everything's going great. But he knows those deep dark nights where you just seem to want to weep throughout the night. Solomon is speaking from experience. He has lived this life, he's experienced, he's gained wisdom from this. So he's sitting his son down and he's saying, listen, listen to me so you can learn and live. Right? And this goes against what we talked about before uh, uh, of living and learning. Right. What Solomon is saying is like, son, I love you too much for you to have to go through the school of hard knocks. I love you too much to see you go out there and make the same mistakes I made. Learn from my mistakes. Learn from my wisdom. Son, I love you too much. You don't have to live and learn. You can learn and live. And that's always a better way to go, isn't it? 
It's better to learn the wisdom of God first so we can live it out with all the abiding blessings instead of learning it the hard way. You know, growing up, we were, we were taught over and over and over again the dangers of drunk driving. Why? Because it's better to learn and live that lesson than to live and learn that lesson, isn't it? The same is true in a Christian life. It's much better to learn the wisdom of God so you can avoid all those pitfalls that can drag you to hell. And you can live by the blessings of them. And that's what we find Solomon here as the earthly father offering to his son. Here's the wisdom to live the best life possible. And through the inspiration and the guidance of the Holy Spirit and Solomon, that this applies to us. This is our Heavenly Father who's offering us this wisdom. And he's offering us this wisdom as a sovereign God, as a providential God. God knows exactly the worst of times that we will have. He knows exactly the best of times we will have. So he's offering us this wisdom to us about how we can best deal with these times. Just like the tone of conversation Solomon's having with his son, God is having with us as his children. Listen to me. If you heed my wisdom and live by it, then this is how things will go well for you. And specifically here, listening and heeding God in the extremities of life, when things are gangbusters and when things aren't gangbusters. And this flows from what God calls us to trust him. In the previous passage, we're called to trust him with all of our hearts. So what's the wisdom of trusting God with all of our heart in the best of times and the worst of times? Where's the wisdom in living out in those ways? So let's begin with the best of times. We see in verses 9 through 10. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce, then your barns, excuse me, then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. What Solomon's saying here is that things are going well. You can't even shut the doors on your barn because it's filled with so much goodness. Your basement is filled with vats of wine that are bulging out and it's leaking out the top because it's filled with some of the best wine around. Solomon is describing when things are going at the best that they could be. Everything is clicking. Everything is moving along at the right pace. You wake up, you wake up in the morning and you, your first thought is, life is good. Today is going to be a wonderful day because everything is great. And what's our tendency to do in those situations? Maybe at the most we say, thank you, God, and then we're off. God can almost become an afterthought to us in the best of times, can't he? That's the warning here. And the warning begins with this. Honor the Lord. When things are going great, what do we need to remember to do? We need to remember to honor the Lord. When we honor him, things go great. When things are going great, we need to remember to honor him. The Hebrew word translated honor means to treat the Lord as weighty. 
And actually the root of that verb means to be heavy. So, so what it's saying here is it's, it's, it's a verb that can relate to a person that carries social weight, somebody who's important. So the wisdom here is we honor the Lord when we put him above all else. That there is nothing else. That there is no one else who is more important to us than the Lord. No one, nothing. We honor the Lord. That is biblical wisdom. So what are we doing the best of times? We honor the Lord. But there's something more specific in this passage. That we honor the Lord with our finances. In the best of times, when we have so many good things, we can't enjoy them all. When we've got more wine, our beer, our bourbon, our, our wine spritzers, or whatever alcoholic drink. And if you're not alcoholic, then Kool-Aid or lemonade, whatever. You have the abundance of, we have all that. When things are going great, we honor the Lord with our finances. Think about what money can communicate. When somebody has a lot of money, there's prestige, there's rank, and there's importance, right? When somebody has a lot of money, small town, medium town, big town, there's prestige. We look up to them. They're important people. They're people worth listening to because they have a lot of money. Why in the world do people listen to Bill Gates? Because Bill Gates has billions of dollars. Bill Gates loses billions of dollars in a day, and he still has billions of dollars. And so we listen to him because Bill Gates has billions of dollars. Jeff Bezos, the owner of Amazon, is listened to why? Because he has all this money. In our world, in our society, in our culture, money equals prestige, rank, and importance. That's the wisdom of the world. Our human nature goes along the wisdom of the world that we honor those who have money. Doesn't matter how smart uh, or how qualified they are, if they just have enough zeros uh, in their bank account, then we listen to them. What's that lead to? Well, it leads to us. That we begin to want to honor ourselves with money. That we face a temptation of wanting more money because the more money we have, the, the, the more money we have, then the more prestige we have, the more rank we have, the more importance we have. And where does that lead to? We honor Bill Gates, we honor ourselves, and God will get the crumbs. We'll honor all the people of money, we'll try to get to that, and then we'll give God what is left over. But what's biblical wisdom? Put in parentheses. Always honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. God comes first when it comes to money. Or really the wisdom here is God comes first, especially when it comes to money. And that's the reverse of the world, isn't it? When we get Uncle Joe's stimulus check, Joe Biden's, call Uncle Joe, sorry. Uh, we get the, the stimulus check, right? What can I do with myself? When we get my, what, what, what can we do with ourselves? But wisdom here is God comes first, especially when it comes to money. Because big, biblical wisdom says that, that, that our mindset becomes, we want to make the Lord famous and prominent. And we want to use our wealth for it. 
We want to use our money to increase his prestige in the world. So as Christians, wisdom is we see our finances first in the light of God's glory. Now there's a lot of, there's a lot of whys to this. But a, a why I want to focus on is why God does this is because when we think about, when we use our money for our own self-importance, when we use our money to build ourselves up in the sight of the world, the sillier we will look, won't we? Now understand, let me make this clear. We're not talking about taking care of the needs of our lives. We're not even talking about having nice things. We need to pay our bills. We need to be responsible that way. It's okay to have nice things. What we're talking about here is when we put money above everything else. When we put our, ourselves first when it comes to money. Because that can cause a lot of damage. When we honor money and rich people above God, that does damage to the church. I think we know that when we use our money to impress others, it never stops. We can never keep up enough with the Joneses. We'll never be able to fully impress all the people we want to. When we're, when we're seeking prestige, rank, and importance, we'll never be satisfied. And we know this. We've seen this played out over and over again, yet we found a temptation to do that. I don't mean this to sound as snarky as sometimes it sounds in my head. So if you hear snarkiness, I'm really trying to get it out. I, 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 I'm amused in watching the news. Watching the news isn't always amusing. Parts of it are, though. Uh, but I'm amused when it's become newsworthy when people with a lot of money get plastic surgery. Uh, you go to a grocery store and there's magazines about all this plastic surgery. And it always seems to be somebody else out there who are getting lips that are too big for their face. Right? And their nose takes on these weird shapes. And they have so much Botox in their skin that their face is frozen. They have the perfect poker face. But they're using all this money to change their appearance. Why? To keep up with the world. They think it gives them more prestige and rank and importance of the world. We're not even talking about their clothes or their houses or their cars, their cars, jets, or vacations. They become a parody of themselves. And that's the wisdom of the world. Another preacher said this way. The more we use our money for self-importance, the sillier, the sillier we look. The pretense of it, the love of appearances, the overreaching, we do that because money has an almost mystical power over us. I love this line. But how many castles in Europe are still lived in by the families that built them? Isn't that a great way to think of it? How many castles in Europe are still lived in by the families that built them? So when we as Christians live by the, the wisdom of the world, it makes us look silly and it does so much damage. A few years ago, before COVID, a young man named, in Dallas named Ben Kirby uh, was, for whatever reason, was sitting at home and decided to look up these different famous preachers on the internet. So he would go to their websites, he would go to YouTube, and he would watch their sermons. We're talking... You have famous pastors who have big churches. As he began to watch through all these different preachers and sermons, he began to notice that a good many of them 
would wear extensive tennis shoes. Week after week, they were wearing these different pairs of tennis shoes that not only cost hundreds of dollars, but thousands of dollars. And of course, those churches don't have a pulpit. So they're kind of roaming the stage, and he sees that they're wearing these really expensive tennis shoes. So he starts an Instagram account called Preachers and Sneakers. And he starts documenting this. So what he does, he takes a picture of the preacher while he's preaching. Uh, so you're usually off the internet. But he has a picture of him in the tennis shoes. And then the next picture shows like the catalog for the tennis shoes. And then how much those shoes cost. And it's one of the most popular uh, sites on Instagram. And of course, this caused an uproar in the Christian community. The preachers that he was documenting began to threaten to sue him. Because they were made to look like fools. Not because of what he posted, but because their own people began to question why they had so many expensive shoes. Why Sunday after Sunday after the sermon, they would step out and say, we need you to give to the ministry of this church. We're trying to do this ministry. We want it to be far reaching. So please give all you want to. Because now it's become apparent Part of the money they're asking for is so they can have a shoe closet at home that has more shoes and it costs more money than probably most of our houses are combined. And people began to write to this guy, to Ben Kirby, and they began to thank him. Because this is part of what drove them away from the church. They heard pastor after pastor who was concerned more about money and prestige and self-importance in the world, and they seemed to be about the gospel, so they ran away from the church. And what's interesting, this has now led to other sites, Prophets and Watches, which documents these pastors who are wearing $50,000 Rolexes. There's another one about all the, the fleets of cars and jets these guys have. For the record... I'm wearing a $36 Timex Ironman I got from Amazon. My wingtips are from Belts. And my truck is 11 years old and is running great. So I don't think I'm in danger of being on these websites. But when Christians start to use their money to flaunt themselves, to make themselves accepted by the world, then we've walked away from this wisdom of God and it does damage. But notice what Solomon tells his son. Honor the Lord with your money and things will go well for you. You will have more to do with than you could ever imagine. You know, Solomon's telling his son, if you honor God with your money, then, then all the things the world's looking for, that's what you'll have in the eyes of God. Weightiness, significance, importance. You will impact history by honoring God with your money. That's the irony of wisdom. So you have preachers and sneakers over here. You have John Piper over here. Some of you may know the name of John Piper. He's a, a Baptist minister in Minneapolis, Minnesota. He's originally from Greenville. Uh, he's a well-known preacher. He, he has uh, uh, published a number of books, Desiring God, uh, Future Grace, uh, Don't Waste Your Life, a number of very popular books. He speaks at conferences all over the world. Part of John Piper's story is he takes a normal 
pastoral salary from his church, Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis. He only takes a salary from them. All the royalties from the books, all of his speaking engagement fees, everything he makes outside of that salary goes back to the church into their missions fund so they can support missionaries all over the world. Folks, I'm telling you, it is thousands and thousands of dollars that John Piper has earned that he's never put his hands on that goes to his church so they can support missionaries all over the world. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. And it's interesting. The more pastors who find out about this about John Piper have all said the same thing. We'll remember that more about John Piper than we'll ever remember his books. We give to God what he has given us and we give him our best because he has given us his best in Jesus Christ. Think about that. He has given us his best and we're called to do that with our finances. And God says, when you do this, then life will go well for you. Matthew Henry, the old Puritan scholar, said this way, God will bless you with an increase of that which is for use, not for show, for giving away, not for hoarding. Those who do good with what they have shall have more to do more good with. And biblical wisdom is, if you love Jesus, nothing could make you happier than to do more good for his sake. Why? Because this is how he treated you. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. We honor the Lord with our finances. Very quickly, because we're, we're running out of time here. The other extreme of life is when things aren't going well. So how do we handle those times with wisdom? First, when things aren't going well, we're suffering. It doesn't mean that God is angry with us. And that tends to be our tendency, right? When things aren't going well, when we get that bad diagnosis from the doctor, our children are rebellious, uh, we've lost our job. When things aren't going well, we think, what have I done to make God angry with me? What can I do to appease him? doesn't mean God is angry with us. Actually, it means the opposite. It means he's invested in us. Why do we say that? Because we go to the book of Hebrews and we go to chapter 11, the heroes of faith. And so many of them that are considered heroes of faith suffered. They trusted God as Proverbs called them to trust him with all their hearts. And they were tortured. They were killed and they were mistreated. Was God mad at them? No, the opposite, he commended them. So I says, God is not ashamed to be called their God. He was proud of them because he, he was invested in them. So when times are hard, biblical wisdom is that we hold on to this. There's not evidence against you. It's not evidence against God. It's the opposite. Because what, what's the wisdom say here? Don't despise this. Don't be weary of it. Because God is doing this because he loves you. It's his discipline. He's treating you as his children. It's discipline. He loves you so much that he's going to discipline you in this way. William Cowper says it this way. Behind a, prov- behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. So when times are hard, it means that God is at work because he loves you. And he's putting those finishes, touches on you. Secondly, biblical wisdom is we recognize these hard times are lessons from God. 
Because when things are going wrong, what's our tendency? Woe is me. God, why this diagnosis? Why my children act in this way? Why have I lost my job? Woe is me. The biblical wisdom is we look to the Lord and say, this is part of your providence. You may not have caused this, but we know you're using it. What would you have me learn? What lesson are you teaching me? And that gives a totally different perspective to our suffering, doesn't it? Instead of moaning and groaning, we're trying to figure out you know, how many Sundays have I missed this year? Is that why God's mad at me? Um, how, many, you know, how many times have I not do my devotions? Is that why God is striking me down? Instead of going that way, we said that good, but no, he loves me. So what lesson can I learn in this? And I would suspect a lesson many of us need to learn in this, and this is for myself as well, is a lesson about Jesus. Jesus himself suffered. Hebrews 5.8. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. So the Bible teaches us that Jesus not only sympathizes with our weaknesses because he was tempted the same way as we are, but he did not sin. So we sing that hymn, Oh, what a friend we have in Jesus. This isn't a holier-than-thou friend. He is. But he's not in a sense that he's been tempted the same way we have. Have you been tempted to curse God? So is Jesus. They said to him on the cross, man, just curse God. Have you been tempted to walk away from God? So is Jesus. That's what Satan tempted him with. Have you been tempted to despair? So is Jesus. Because oodles of people walked away from him. Any temptation we can suffer, Jesus has gone through. And he succeeded on our behalf. What a friend we have in Jesus. That's why we're told, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace so we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I'll end with this. It is always, we always find it helpful to go to a person who has gone through what we've gone through. Isn't it? It's always helpful to go to those people who've walked this path before us because they know what it's like. The diagnosis, the rebellion, the loss of job. And the wonderful thing about Jesus Christ is we can always go to him because he has always gone there before us. And biblical wisdom tells us to remember that. When times are hard, It's not because God hates you. He has a lesson for you to learn. And that lesson is probably to rely more upon Jesus. Because whatever you're going through, he has already gone through before you. And he can offer you that wisdom and that grace and that mercy that we need. So what's wisdom in in the best of times and the worst of times? It's honoring God. Honoring God with our wealth and honoring him by going to the son who has gone this path before us. Pray with me.